So we understand meditation as a path to calming the mind, focusing the mind, and allowing us to see things more clearly. And in general, in the Buddhist view, is because we see things unclearly, we end up experiencing suffering. And so meditation is a path for helping us see more clearly and to diminish our suffering. And I want to say some things about sort of engaging in a spiritual path that seemed to be omnipresent in two senses. One is that almost all of us who engage in a spiritual path encounter this, and omnipresent in that it seems to occur over and over for all of us. And some of what I'm going to say today, uh, my own ordinary mind doesn't exactly understand, but there were some things that came up in my meditation that have moved me to say some things, even though I may not fully understand what I'm saying. So bear with me. I think that we all in the modern West are beset by two conditions. One is that uh, we're often very isolated, and sometimes we don't even know how isolated we are. And some of that isolation has to do with also the sense that we need to take things on independently. We have a kind of um, phobia against being dependent in our culture. And we, you know, it's, there is this kind of um, billiard ball view of individuality that we carry in the, the modern West. And it's got deep philosophical roots and Locke's idea of what we are as human beings. And I'm not going to go review that right now, but really our kind of deep cultural DNA is that we are these independent monads. And, uh, and that would be in opposition to what the sort of the baseline in Asia is that we start off as a community. We don't start with that kind of presupposition in the modern West. We start with the presupposition that we are individuals. And so we kind of feel we've got to do things on our own. And um, so that leaves us isolated in many ways. Even if we're in key relationships, we may be very isolated. We may be very reluctant to seek assistance. And the other is that when we take on a spiritual path, uh, we might find ourselves very, very subject to uh, an enormous amount of evaluation. And, and this is also kind of part and parcel of our culture. Am I doing better? Am I doing worse? And associated with that kind of evaluation is also states of shame. And so, you know, if flu is our current pandemic in our city and in our country right now, medically, when people take on spiritual practice, there's a kind of, uh, I call it a cold typically, but, you know, it's the common cold of spiritual practice seems to be, one, this sense of isolation, and then two, a kind of perpetual sense of, I could be doing better. Um, 
And that's the mild form. When it gets a higher fever, it's like, I'm a terrible practitioner. And the deepest fever is, of course, I'm the worst practitioner, which is a kind of interesting form of grandiosity, which is, I can't just be an ordinarily bad practitioner. I'm the worst practitioner. It means I'm actually quite special. So we all go through this, and it's very, very debilitating, and it, and it absorbs a lot of our energy in our practice. And shame really involves judging ourselves with respect to the past and with respect to the future. And it may be important to understand and appreciate that, you know, if we really start thinking about it, and we most of the time don't, you know, where is the past? What is the past? And what is the future? I mean, where is the future? And in some deep sense, very, very deep sense, the present moment is actually beyond time. And all of our practices are aimed at bringing us to what already is, which is a state beyond time. And so everything we're doing is really moving us closer and closer into the present to where there can ultimately be an opening into a kind of timeless presence. That's kind of the antithesis of, and also even an antidote to any states of shame and comparative judgment, which are always, well, in the future I could be better, or in the past I was better, and I should be better, and I would be better. And so all of this head stuff that we all get lost into really has to do with getting absorbed in time travel. And it's important to appreciate that practice really is orienting us to a state of presence, which is ultimately, in a way, out of time. Now, that's hard to talk about, it's hard to experience, but it may be important to at least hear about. But the other thing is that in our isolated sense of self berating, we need assistance. And it's hard, hard for us to admit to ourselves that we're not arriving at our self-made benchmarks or that we need help. So the first thing I want to make three points and then hand the baton over to Anne, I've got to speak quickly here, is that it's important to recognize that to rely on others is not necessarily dependence. Just because you ask a teacher a question or you reflect on yourself with a teacher, that's not dependence. And it's actually very, very important. We almost have a phobia against this kind of thing. And especially men, you know, the joke is if a man's getting lost, he'll never go into the gas station to ask for directions. You know, they'd rather spend three hours, we would rather spend three hours mm -hmm. driving around being lost and actually talk to somebody. Um, and I've got that DNA so I can cop to it. But it's, it's like crazy, you know, why not just acknowledge, I don't know, ask somebody and find out where we need to go. And so in Buddhist practice, we have refuge. And actually in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about four refuges, the teacher, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the community. And both the teacher and the community are real, live, living, breathing human beings. And so if you're practicing and you're having some difficulty, 
please talk to us, teachers, or please talk to people who you know have been around for a while and ask them questions or seek support. Hey, you know, I'm trying to do five minutes a day of meditation. Have you figured out how to do five minutes a day of meditation? Yes or no? What seems to help? <laughs> how did you get around your obstacles? Oh, that's so helpful to hear. Um, I think some people know how to do that about cooking or woodworking. <laughs> Um, we need to do that about our spiritual life. It's very, very helpful and very, very useful to get and seek assistance from our colleagues. Then the other is, it's really, really hard, but it's really, really important. And this is kind of a delicate balance. And that is to just recognize the facts as simply the facts. So I decide I'm going to meditate 30 minutes a day, and there I am, it's Sunday, and I've meditated five minutes today, and how do I feel? Can it just be, I had decided to meditate 30 minutes, and I meditated five minutes, them's the fact, versus I decided to meditate 30 days, and I meditated five minutes, and there I am being a dumb schmuck again. I'm just a failure. I just can't set any goals and meet them. I'll never amount to anything in my life. I haven't amounted to anything in my life. My mother and father were right. <laughs> I'd be a failure. <laughs> my poor cousin Herbie, he had his father was a rabbi. And I only met Herbie when I was a freshman in college. And they were, he was a rabbi and he'd have his son Herbie. Herbie was really a schlump, unfortunately. And he'd have him up on the stage during services. And Nathan Aronson, my cousin, would look at Herbie and literally on the stage say, you dumb schmuck, you're on the wrong page. So, you know, if you have a father like that who's a rabbi, <laughs> what are you internalizing? I mean, it's terrible. And many of us have had parents or siblings like that. And then we walk around thinking I'm a dumb schmuck. And when I go into a spiritual practice and I want to do 30 minutes, I only do five. Guess what voice arises in our heads? So it's a bit of a training to really just be able to, in an even equanimous manner, just be able to say, I wanted to do 30 and I did five. Tomorrow, I'll see what I can do to maybe arrive at 30 again. Now... Even acceptance is actually a very, very delicate tightrope. Some people hear even acceptance and they want to fall into complacency, which is, I did five today, it wasn't 30, and I'm accepting that. And, well, actually, I can accept just sort of going on, going on. Tomorrow I'll do none. Because I'm evenly accepting reality. So it's a very, very interesting tightrope that spiritual practice kind of leads us to and it is we don't want to condemn ourselves we don't want to beat ourselves we don't want to shame and blame ourselves and we actually want to engage in some effort and so do something and change something and so learning how to engage and change without shame is a big big training it's a big training for all of us how do I energize myself without beating myself? It's really important to name that as a real challenge. You know, 
we all kind of energize ourselves by like, I got to do this or I'm, you know, really the worst person in the world. Well, there's some adrenaline in that, but it's quite toxic, quite toxic. And so being able to engage without self-hate is really a big challenge and it's very, very important. And to remain engaged. So one of the ways to really work with this kind of thing, and I'm about to hand the baton, is being able to really be mindful of what's going on in our body. We're going to be talking more and more because it's clear that all of us in our culture have trouble knowing what's going on in our bodies. But the simple fortune cookie on this is, um, you know, in some ways, I'll just speak from my own presuppositions. You know, we hear about all sorts of wonderful spiritual states, which seem to be non-dimensional. They're sort of spacious and open and beyond time and space. And it seems like you just want to hop to a non-dimensional experience. Well, the paradoxical reality is that if you're not aware of your body, these non-dimensional states of spaciousness and timelessness, whatever, which are somehow in some interesting relationship with our body, if you're not knowing who you are and what you are and what's actually going on from moment to moment, you can't just skip from ordinary consciousness into a non-dimensional state. The path involves knowing what is going on inside of us very, very granularly our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations, and not rejecting anything, but actually the path to non-dimensional spaciousness and presence is through a very, very refined and accepting discrimination of all that's going on in our experience. And with that, I will hand it to you, dear. <laughs> So the kind of judgment that Harvey is talking about, is that in your head or is it in your body? The body doesn't really judge itself. The body is there. And when we speak about wishing to become free from self-judgment because, and to discriminate self-judgment from self-awareness, you know, one could simply decide, well, everything's fine and doesn't matter how I feel. And that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about that edge, you might say, that nuance of being aware of how we feel and not judging it, not wishing it were different, not time traveling. So that's, you can hear already that that's a kind of learning process because we are very reactive, generally speaking, and something happens and Immediately, we like or we don't like. I mean, right away. Whether it's meeting another person or a certain thought, a certain feeling comes up. And no good. No good. Don't like it. So when we speak about becoming freer and freer from judgment, and as Harvey says, it's a long process. It's part of our path. It's not not the path to realize that we're stuck in self-judgment. And that might feel different in every one of us. You know, we all grew up in different families and different contexts, but you might, as you're sitting pleasantly or observing your breath or chanting a melodious sound, you know, stuff comes up. I wish this were different. I wish I hadn't said that. Why did they do that? 
does anybody not have these experiences? So you can just notice that how quickly your own judgment, that just means liking, disliking, wanting to push away, wanting to have more of, I can't wait till I get you know, another chance for that great pizza or that great moment with somebody. Just notice it, that's all, as a fact, without judging and with awareness of how that actually feels. So when we talk about being free of judgment or freer, because it's a process, um, we are also saying, can we get out of our heads in some way? Judgment is a mode of thought, right? It's an idea. My elbow doesn't judge whether it's bent or straight, right? But if I'm doing exercises, I might feel I'm doing them well or not well. I spoke yesterday, I was in Los Angeles, and uh, talking to a friend who is a longtime practitioner of Korean Buddhism and had just started to study with a, a teacher who was very effective for her and said that he said, meditate without your head. He said, use everything in the body but not your head. And I was surprised and said, well, not, you know, we, as you know, often emphasize, as many traditions do, settling in your belly, because that's a way to really get deep in your body and, and just be a little more present to that timeless present, timelessly present moment that Harvey is talking about. The body is always in the present. It's a great thing about it. We want to learn about being in the present, to be present to the body. And so I asked her, well, do you, you know, do settle in the hara, they call it in Japan, Korea, it's often part of the Zen tradition. She said, no, no. He just said, skip the head. <laughs> no head. Um, and we're a very heady culture, you know, um, so that's not so easy. Release judgment as you get more sensitive to what's going on in your body, which we're going to encourage as we when we practice this morning, we'll, one of the things that we'll do is uh, cultivate a willingness to be aware of the sensation of your breath moving through your body. Now, that's fairly subtle. It's not so subtle that you can't find it, uh, but it's easy to get knocked off that into some other kind of rumination. Feeling that, and whenever you notice there's some judgment, don't start judging the judgment that's an infinite chain. Oh, I'm bad. I'm judging. I'm not supposed to judge. Just notice, oh, there's judgment. Come back to your breath. There's no judgment in your breath. It can be a big relief. Buddhist and Hindu traditions talk about freedom. What are we trying to get freedom from? Well, we say samsara, cyclic existence, but what does that actually mean? It means the cyclical process of our own reactivity and our own getting involved in our own thoughts and wearing ourselves out with um, self-recrimination, wishing we're in a different time and place. And when we start to look at it, again, speaking from my experience, it's kind of shocking <laughs> how much time we spend wishing that this present moment, which is all we've got, we're different. So we are seeking to be free from that kind of pull and grab of the non-existent past and not yet existent future so that we can be here and in our lives and in relationship. So meditation and the way we understand this is as a 
deepening our capacity for relationship. Sometimes there, there's a kind of uh, bad press or distorted press anyway about meditation. You know, you're all alone, sitting like this, not paying attention to anybody. Thank goodness I don't have to pay attention to anybody now. I can just sit here. That also might be our feeling. But really, what we are cultivating is a deeper capacity for relationship, which, as Harvey says, goes against a lot in our, in, in our culture. I mean, many people grow up in very close communities, uh, and yet I think to some extent we are all affected by this larger um, kind of mass cultural ideal of you know, being separate and individual, the hero, you know, the lone hero. So we're cultivating relationship with ourselves first. It's actually really important to have a good relationship with yourself. Well, a good relationship with yourself, do you think that's going to be enhanced if you're always scolding yourself, if you're being um, Rabbi Aronson <laughs> to yourself? And, oh, you bad person, dumb, dumbest person. It's not being a friend. It's also not being a friend not to notice that, oh, you know, I did want to cultivate meditation on a regular basis, and I'm not doing it. Hmm. What, what do I want to do from here? Let's see. Maybe if I turn the TV off a little earlier. Yeah, I think I could do that. And then I'd have a few more minutes to practice. That's really different from either saying, oh, who cares? It doesn't matter. All is one. <laughs> you know, Or getting on my case. Getting on our cases is actually not helpful. It feels like it's helpful because the superego thing just goes wild. And something in us feels that scolding ourselves is, you know, being disciplined and good and, and righteous. And, but it's really not helpful. What's helpful is to recognize, oh, I did this. This really wasn't my intention. Is this, do I want to hold that intention? Let me look inside. Not compare myself to some, oh, they're meditating hours every day. That's useless. It's not about comparison, but the relationship with oneself. Oh, is this my intention? Yes. Well, how can I carry it out? Have a conversation with yourself. If you can be like that with yourself, friendly, not judgmental, helpful, aware, well, that becomes a template, and you can be that way with other people as well. So being present to our body which we do by watching our breath. And also, as you know, this morning we do some chanting. So chanting is very, very, I mean, it's a kinesthetic experience, right? You feel the vibration in your body. It helps us to stay in the present. And that's why we alternate between breathing and sounding so that we have uh, a little bit of variety and it makes it easier to stay present. Now, if we pull back the camera for a moment, uh, and, and look at the larger Buddhist picture, which we like to touch into uh, frequently. Yes, we want to be free from our own reactivity, our own self-judgment. We want to get out of our heads and just be here. You know, the world, it's not all about ideas and talk. And there's something about just being present and alive without a plan, at least for a few minutes. And I think that's why many of us find a little bit of meditation very, very helpful. It's, it's like a relief. Okay, I can 
get into this larger space of my own mind that's not always twittering <laughs> uh, and texting myself. And so from the Buddhist position, and uh, this is a tremendous thing, actually, to become free of the chatter and reactivity of the mind. Because what lies behind that? What happens when the clouds clear in the sky? Wow, you get this vast horizon sense of expansiveness that's just lovely and empowering without being isolating or without being overbearing to somebody else. A different kind of power, you know, just look at the vast sky, bless you. And... So when we get clear of all of this inner tweeting that we're always doing to ourselves, there is also a vast sky. Buddhists will call this Buddha nature or reality or true nature. And by all accounts, it's very lovely. And it is a state of profound freedom and satisfaction and presence. So that's a larger frame in which we do these practices. If you enjoyed this teaching, please visit our website, dawnmountain.org, to subscribe to this course and find other great Dharma offerings. May all beings always have happiness in its causes. May all beings always be free of pain in its causes.